All right, let's get into our sermon for today. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. We are almost at the end of our series, Strangers and Exiles. We've been making our way through 1 Peter. We finally hit the last chapter. We are almost at the end. And it's, it's been such a great series um, in which we've been looking at this book, 1 Peter, and it has this underlying theme of how to live in a place or how to live in this world that is not our home, since that is what an exile is. That is who we are. We are strangers or aliens within this place or this culture. And if you can remember far back enough, we began the series by looking at those who were actually exiled in the Old Testament to help set the stage for coming to Peter's letter, seeing what it meant to be an exile or a stranger, and especially as one who has faith in God. And what we saw in the Old Testament and what we see Peter addressing is this strange sort of paradox in which we are God's people. Peter calls us God's chosen. And yet we are in a land and a culture in which we don't fit in, in which we're not the top dogs, but we're the outcasts. We're the ones that the world mocks and even persecutes. We are strangers and exiles. So Peter's letter has been a reminder it's been an encouragement, and it's been an exhortation for how to live as followers of Christ when the world around us cares nothing for him. Because we know how the world ultimately responded to Jesus. They shouted, crucify him. There's a recurring metaphor throughout scripture that Peter mentions in his letter, and it's this idea of darkness and light. It describes this opposition between God and the world of fallen people and all its wickedness and its sin within it. And it describes it quite well. We see it pop up a few different times in the New Testament, so I wanted to expound on it a little bit. In this metaphor, we see that God is described in 1 John 1.5 as God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. I'm going to be firing through a ton of scriptures, so... You can try and keep up, but I'm going to go fast. Um, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, it says of Jesus, God in the flesh, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So God is light. There's no darkness within him. And his light came into the world through Jesus. But how did the world respond to him as this light? John 1, verses 10 through 11 say, he was in the world, Jesus, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But why would the world, why would people, even his own people, not recognize or receive this light? John 3.19 says, the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. So we see in this metaphor the contrast of light and darkness or God and the sinful light, the sinful life apart from him. We as humans have all taken part in darkness. We've hated the light. We've avoided it. 
We've tried to remain hidden in our sin so that we can continue delighting in it and in ourselves rather than in God. Fortunately, God is greater than any darkness. He's greater than any sin that we want to remain hidden with. As John 1.5 says, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. God's light is greater than any darkness, meaning God is greater than any sin or any selfish desire that we think gives us joy and hope, but really leaves us feeling empty and in despair. Because we were created to be satisfied in God and in his light, not in the sin and darkness that separates us from him. The amazing thing is, is that God graciously provided a way out of that darkness. John 3, 16 through 17 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God wants to rescue us out of the darkness, and it comes through faith in him, seeking his light, rather than clinging to the darkness. Which is why John says in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I say all this because it ties right into this overarching point of Peter's letter found in chapter 2, verse 9. Peter tells his fellow believers, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were once in darkness, but he rescued us. We were once dead in our sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. We are saved by grace. That's from Ephesians 2. It's exactly what Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This theme of being brought from darkness to light is scattered throughout the New Testament by multiple authors, and Peter is using it as the foundation for his letter. Peter goes on to describe it in chapter 2, verse 10, as once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As these believers in Peter's time are living in the world as these strangers and exiles, Peter reminds them that they are the ones rescued from darkness and brought into his marvelous light, into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So Peter has been instructing his audience and us today on, then, on how then we should live as God's chosen in a world that we do not fit in, because they are in darkness. We must not forget where we came from before Christ pulled us from the darkness and into his marvelous light. There is a world still lost in darkness, 
that we are called to proclaim his praises to, knowing that there are still more to be rescued. And in doing so, in continuing to live in our darkened world, proclaiming God's praises, we will face hardship and suffering and persecution. That's a given. If Jesus faced it, so will we. So in Brandon's last sermon at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Peter, there was a lot of talk about suffering because Peter brought it up a lot. Chapter 4 ended with Peter saying in verse 19, So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Peter calls us to continue doing good in the midst of suffering and to trust in our faithful God who has never failed us in his promises, for he brought us from darkness to light. This takes us to our passage for today, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7, in which we'll see Peter address the elders or the pastors of the church, as well as the first part of Peter addressing all of the church body uh, to be a church that thrives in suffering. So let's pray and then read our passage for today. Father, you are so good, so merciful. You have brought us from darkness to light. You have given us new life in you. We have this assured hope and salvation in you that nothing in this world can compare to. Father, I pray this morning as we are looking at your word that our hearts and our minds can be open and ready to hear from you. I pray your spirit can be working on us, can be molding us, shaping us, changing us in ways that you desire. I pray that you can just be transforming us into into who you desire us to be, that we may be a light in the darkness, proclaiming your praises to a world that doesn't know you. I pray as we just work through this text, Lord, that um, you can just be accomplishing all that you desire. We pray in your name, amen. So let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. In the first four verses of chapter 5, Peter transitions now to address those who led the church, those who'd be facing the brunt of this life of suffering both personally and as they help other believers navigate through their own suffering. He then transitions in verse 5 to the younger at first, and then everyone with a call to humility, which we'll see serves as the bedrock to a life of faith and living in community with other believers. Because Peter wants to conclude his letter with instructions for the churches to truly thrive in the midst of the suffering. So point number one is elders are called to lead well. Elders are called to lead well. I figured I'd keep it nice and simple. Elders are called to lead well. We'll read verses one through four. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shared in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The first thing Peter indirectly points out is this idea of multiple elders or pastors. These terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Pastor, overseer, elder, they're all used in the same meaning, just to make that clear. Um, And so he's pointing out it's not just supposed to be a single guy running the show. The shepherding of God's flock in local churches is meant to be handled by multiple qualified and called men. These qualifications are listed in a couple places in Paul's writings. And the first is in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And the second is in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I'll read Titus 1, 5 through 9, so that we're all on the same page for what these type of men, what, who these elders are supposed to be. Titus is right after First and Second Timothy, right before Philemon and Hebrews. Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 5. Paul's writing to Titus and says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders, notice plural, in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, Not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So these are the men who have been chosen or elected and they serve in their local churches. And Peter has some words for them. But how does Peter introduce himself? On what grounds does he speak to these leaders? He doesn't refer to himself as an apostle of Christ or one of the 12 original disciples or even one of the three 
closest disciples of Jesus. And all of those are true. Peter could truthfully and easily claim those things. But rather he speaks as a fellow elder. Because Peter has experience in the Jerusalem church serving as an elder there. He knows the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the ins and outs of being an elder for the church. But he doesn't stop there either. He adds in that he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I think Peter is inferring two things here. He knows what can and will be experienced and how the greatest leader handled that. And he personally knows how not to handle those situations. In the midst of Christ's sufferings, Peter was a witness and had a powerful testimony to what Jesus did. But Peter also denied any relation to Christ while he suffered. Peter didn't choose to address himself as a witness to the resurrection of Christ because Peter is trying to help his fellow believers understand how to live faithfully in the midst of suffering. Peter wants the elders, these shepherds of God's flock, to not make the mistakes that he has made. So he speaks from his own experience in those trying times of suffering. And Peter's final addressing of himself is as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. This is where Peter's hope and joy lies. It's where he sets his focus as a shepherd of God's flock. So this is how he comes to the elders. As a brother, a fellow elder who has fallen short in the midst of trials and suffering, but whose hope lies in God's grace and salvation. So he urges them, shepherd, pastor, lead, teach, protect, and care for God's flock among you. The call of the elders was to care for the church as a shepherd cares for his sheep. This task was and still is no small matter, though, because the elders are not caring for their own flock, but rather God has entrusted the care of his people, his flock, his church, to these faithful and qualified men. The elders carry one of the greatest responsibilities given by God to lead, protect, and care for his people. So as a fellow elder wanting other elders to do well in their calling, Peter lists out three warnings or things not to do as a shepherd and what the correct way is. The first warning is to shepherd not out of compulsion but willingly, meaning he has freely chosen to do it. God doesn't need anyone in the role of an elder who doesn't actually want to be there. This is not a responsibility that someone takes on because, well, someone has to do it, but because they feel called and choose to take it on. As 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work, which goes right into Peter's next point. The second warning is to shepherd not out of greed, but eagerly, meaning they aren't motivated by selfish reasons or for personal gain, but they are genuinely excited to lead, teach, and serve God's flock among them. 
It ties right, right back to 1 Timothy 3.1. Aspiring to be an overseer or a pastor. Desiring a noble work. These words carry a positive tone to them that adds to the free choice of serving as an elder. There is a passion to do so and a selfless one that is not motivated by greed. The third warning is one that we can all agree with. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. Whenever leaders or leadership is brought up, we can all have little warning lights going off in our heads about bad leadership we've either experienced or heard of. What Peter is calling the elders to be is an example of what it means to faithfully follow God day in and day out. The first two warnings were more of an internal challenge to the elders. This final warning was a challenge externally to how they lived, interacted, and treated others. When Jesus was with his disciples towards the end of his ministry, James and John, along with their mom, went up to Jesus and asked if they could sit at his right and left in the kingdom. When the other disciples heard about that, they were not all that happy with them. And Jesus took that moment to teach them all about what good leadership really is. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, it says, Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the example elders are to set, to lead by serving the flock that God has entrusted to them. So in Peter's call for the elders to lead well, how does he motivate and encourage them? Definitely not by anything in this life, but by what is to come. In verse 4, Peter says, When the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, your reward will be an unfading crown of glory. A crown in their time was the equivalent of a trophy in our time, recognition of doing something well. What exactly this crown is is not fully explained, but Peter's point is to encourage the elders to not have a temporary or an earthly mindset for motivation as to why they serve God's flock, but to have an eternal and heavenly mindset. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Peter wants the elders to set their gaze and their hope on the glory about to be revealed, to live and lead in light of the chief shepherd returning, and to receive their crown for their faithful work in shepherding his flock. This is what motivates godly and faithful leadership. And this is what all elders are told to seek. And in doing so, 
The elders of the church are set to lead God's flock as he intended. And this is what I and the other elders at FBC here strive to do. To lead by example, serving our church body, caring for your guys' needs, faithfully teaching the word of God, and to do all this and more, both willingly and eagerly with our eyes focused on Christ, the chief shepherd who we will one day answer to. And we hope to raise up and train more elders to shepherd God's flock among them, whether they are here with us or called somewhere else. This was Peter's challenge to the elders of his time, to lead well. And almost 2,000 years later, it still rings true. In verse 5, Peter now makes a transition, stating, in the same way, which he has used a couple of times already to switch the audience that he's been speaking to. In verse 5, he's switching from addressing the elders to speaking to those who are younger, and then shortly after that, to everyone within the church. And this transition takes us to the second point for today. Point number two, everyone is called to humility. Everyone is called to humility. Let's read verses 5 through 7. This is Peter chapter 5. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, Casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. So Peter is still dealing with the church and its different relationships, but now it's just from the other side of things. And he starts off by addressing a specific group, saying those who are younger and calling them to be subject to the elders. And some questions may arise in this verse. Is Peter now speaking of an older generation when he says elders in light of just using the term younger? That's not the case here, given what Peter had just spoken of, elders, pastors of the church. And also, the main thing is with the word translated be subject to. It is used in cases of authority, like a leader, and not used in the sense of respecting those who are older than you. Although that is also told to be true in the Bible. You're supposed to respect your elders. So, why does Peter get specific by saying younger people instead of just saying everyone. Perhaps the younger ones were more likely to have a hard time with being subject to the elders. Peter doesn't specify his reasoning, so we don't really know. But we do know from Scripture that there is a call for all to be subject to the faithful, God-loving, and God-fearing elders or shepherds of the church. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now again, some may cringe at that line, obey your leaders and submit to them. But remember who your leaders are, their character, and who God has called them to be as your servant leaders. And to be clear, 
If any elder is calling you to disobey God, you do not obey, but you confront them in their sin. But all of this, the submitting, the leading, the being subject to, all points to Peter's next sentence. He says very clearly, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. All of you, leaders, church body, everyone, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. If any of what Peter is asking and commanding were to actually happen, it could only take place in a community of humility. People are only submitting to leaders, and leaders are only leading by serving if humility is the basis of it all. And this should be the case for the church, for the body of Christ. Why? Peter once again makes it very clear. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter's quoting Proverbs 3.34 here, and he's making the point that we're all united in the fact that we came humbly before God. He's the one who rescued us from darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. If we begin to live pridefully, God will not be on our side. Our relationships with our fellow believers in the church will be harmed. God's flock won't be subject to any leaders. And the elders won't be servant leaders who shepherd and serve the flock. God's church body will not thrive. The spiritual growth of the church is dependent upon humility. Without humility, you'll have bad leaders and rebellious church members. So here's what humility is. Paul defines it really well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here it is, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Paul, once again, is saying what Peter says. Everyone, everyone should, not, should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, humility can be seen as a weakness, especially in our culture of personal achievement and success. But in Peter's writing of clothing ourselves with humility... For Peter, it's probably drawing up memories of Jesus tying a towel around himself as he was about to wash his disciples' own feet. So turn to John chapter 13 with me, starting at verse 4. John chapter 13. And we'll get to see this, this idea of humility. I'll read verses 4 and 5, and then I'm going to jump to verses 12 through 17. Jesus and his disciples were having dinner together right before Passover, right before he was going to be taken, persecuted, crucified. It says, so he got up from supper, talking about Jesus, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Jumping to verse 12. 
When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The all-powerful, almighty, king of kings and lord of lords got down and washed his disciples' dirty, grimy feet. They just wore sandals back then. Like, it was nasty. And this is the model that we have been given and that we are called to replicate as God's children toward one another, all of us in here. And it's not just the leaders, it's not just the church body, everyone. We all are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And at this point, it's easy to think of everyone else who's been prideful. But right now, we need to look at ourselves. We need to examine our own hearts and see where our pride or our selfishness is hindering not only our own spiritual growth, but the growth of our church. Because Peter's main reason behind all this is that God resists the proud. God opposes the proud. May that be a warning to us and to our temptation to cling to our pride and selfish desires because God's grace only comes to the humble. It is in humility that we are blessed by God's grace. It is in our pride that we fall flat on our face and we're reminded of our need for his grace to live humbly and dependent upon him. Luke 14, 11 says it really well. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is why Peter urges his audience and us today to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand because we are not ultimately in control of our lives or the world around us only God by his mighty hand is and in humbling ourselves to God he will exalt us as it says at the end of verse 6 he will deliver us from the trial or suffering in his timing and this exaltation isn't only referring to being exalted in eternity as Peter uses some different language here so it's this generic sense. It's either in our current life or in the life to come. Either way, God's mighty hand is the one who will do the work. So we should humble ourselves before him because truly, who else is there to depend on? And guess what? He also cares for us. But how do we humble ourselves before God? Peter once again makes it nice and clear in verse 7. He states, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Humility with God is letting go of all the things that we are anxious, nervous, worried, fearful, caring about, or fixated on. 
handing it over to him to trust in his promises, his provision, his faithfulness, and his goodness. And in doing so, when we cast all that onto God, we can actually humbly consider the needs of others because we're trusting God to meet our own needs now. We can actually care for one another because we're trusting God to care for us. And on top of that, God is magnified and glorified in your life. The more dependent you are on God and the more you cast your anxieties on him, the more praise and adoration he gets because he promises to come through on all that he's ever said. You can't go wrong in casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter got this from David in Psalm 55, 22, in which David writes, Cast all your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. That's a pretty good promise right there. So how does this look in our own lives? Keep saying, cast your anxieties on him. But once again, how do we do that? Let me share an example from my own anxieties recently. It all started with a bachelor party that involved skydiving. Yes, I am slightly and rationally terrified of heights, but my worry and anxiety was more than just potentially jumping out of an airplane, which I did not end up doing. My worry and anxiety took me down this rabbit hole of worrying about if I were to die, I would no longer be with my wife. They would no longer have a husband and a father. When I practiced it earlier, I didn't cry. <laughs> so close. So I decided not to go skydiving. But this fear of dying continued to gnaw at me. I prayed about it. Tried rationalizing and applying biblical truths to my fears and worries. But I still couldn't shake it off. So I was unsettled for a while, and for far longer than I normally am with these times of worry and anxiety. I'm pretty good at just trusting God and moving along. And I knew these verses. I knew 1 Peter 5, 7, and I knew Psalm 55, 22. And I would continually cast my anxieties on him. But what I was really doing was sort of just like showing them to God. Saying like, hey, this is bugging me but I never let go of it. I still held on to it. The word Peter uses for casting implies throwing or laying something on, meaning Peter was telling his audience to go and lay your anxieties on God and let go of them. To trust that God really does care for you and will handle anything you throw onto him. He'll take care of it with his mighty hand. For me, that meant realizing in that time of fear and worry that God really does care for me, that he knows how much I love my wife and kids, that he cares for them just as much as he cares for me, and that he is our good and perfect heavenly father who knows all things and is in control of all that was, is, and is yet to come. I hadn't let go of my worry and fear yet because it hadn't clicked in my head that I could actually trust God with this. I was, in a way, 
doubting God and his promises. But by God's grace, he walked me through all of that, and I landed in a place where I can cling to God as my heavenly father, knowing that he loves and cares for me and my family, whatever may come. And the same is true for you. God cares for you. You can actually trust him. He has never failed on his promises, even in tragedy and suffering. All you have to do is look at the cross and see the greatest thing ever done. He has brought us from darkness into marvelous light. So, may the elders of our church shepherd God's flock as he intended through faithful servant leadership. May we all clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, loving and being concerned for the needs of others above our own. And may we all humble ourselves before God, casting our cares on him because he cares for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who truly cares for us. You want us to cast all our anxieties and our fears and our doubts on you. And in doing so, you are just glorified and praised even more. And we are freed up to live humbly and love one another. Father, I pray for our church that we can all be reflecting on our own hearts, seeing ways in which we have chosen to hold on to pride or selfishness rather than caring for the needs of others. Father, I pray for our elders as we're called to shepherd your flock willingly, eagerly, and leading by example. Father, I pray that you can just be guiding us here at FBC to be a church that thrives in the midst of whatever comes our way. May we humbly and faithfully follow you each and every day. Pray in your name. Amen.